0: Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new release, Thunderclouds in the Forecast, a novel by Clarence Major. This book traverses the linked histories of two friends, one black, the other white, who grew up wards of the state in New York. With spare prose and subtle poignancy, Major probes love, loyalty, and belonging to tell an unforgettable story of life on the brink of sweeping change. Listeners receive a 20% discount on thunderclouds in the forecast or any other title with promo code POD20. This offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. Today's episode is also brought to you by Miriam Chancy's what Storm, What Thunder, a novel Angie Cruz calls a gorgeous and compulsively readable page-turner in the most haunting and stunning prose, says Edwidge Danticat, lending her voice to ten survivors whose lives were indelibly altered by the January twelfth, two 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Miriam Chancy's sublime choral novel not only describes what it was like for her characters before, during, and after that heartrending day, she also powerfully guides us towards further reflection and healing. What Storm, What Thunder is out now from Tin House. Today's episode with Percival Everett is long in the making. Every so often I reach out to inquire about a writer that seems like a long shot. And given how few audio interviews there are with Percival Everett over the decades, and his frequently stated aversion to talking about what his work means, or engaging in meaning-making around a work of his once it is published, when I approached Grey Wolf, I was pleasantly surprised he said yes. That yes led to a series of really great happenings over the early summer. My innocent inquiry on Twitter regarding what everyone's favorite Percival Everett book was, turned into quite a debate, with passionate defenses of many very different books by him. And the folks at Grey Wolf themselves debated which of his books from his back catalog to send me, and one staff member even slipped into the box a non-Grey Wolf book, God's Country, as his favorite. A book I learned later was edited by Grey Wolf's Fiona McCrae, pre-Grey Wolf, and that Percival followed her to Grey Wolf, and they've both been there ever since. Percival's two dogs, Harry and Banjo, were in the room, quite well behaved during this conversation, but you may once in a while briefly hear the jingle of one or the other's callers while we talk. Before we begin, I should mention that whether you are a long-time listener or a new one, If you've been considering becoming a listener supporter of the show, now would be a particularly good time to do so as we are flush with new gifts to offer beyond the things every supporter gets. Everyone who supports the show gets a resource-rich email with each episode where I talk about the preparation I did, what I discovered, and point people to both what I've referenced in the show, including other interviews, scholarly work, essays, podcasts, and videos, and also suggestions of where to go to explore further. And every listener can participate in the collective brainstorm of who we should invite in the future. One of the main reasons Percival Everett is a guest today. But there are a lot of other possible benefits, too. From the bonus audio archive with extra material from everyone from Nikki Finney to Natalie Diaz to Ted Chiang to Padre Gotuma and the new things, including a poetry consultation with New York Times poetry columnist and writer Elisa Gabbert, asking writerly questions to poet Kava Akbar and receiving a personalized video from him, a wide variety of collectibles sent from Ireland by a Ghost in the Throat author, Deren Negrifa, and some great signed book bundles of the novels, memoirs, and anthologies by Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. This only scratches the surface, but regardless of all of this, perhaps you simply find these conversations useful for your own art-making practice or a meaningful way to stay connected to the world of writing and reading, and you want to raise the number of listeners who are also supporters from the 3 to 4% mark closer to 5 If you want to learn more, head over to patreon.com slash covers to check it all out. And in the meantime, here is the much-anticipated and much-asked-for episode with none other than Percival Everett.
1: These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness
0: contained in all of us. I think stories kind of... Like- have some kind of magical effect in the world I think it's really hard to live without stories and if somebody tells you like this is the way you're going to end up you're lucky if you can forget that you know there's me and then there's writer guy me and then there's me working which is the absence of me it's just story had no idea how to write a novel didn't know if it would ever
1: come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself
0: Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Percival Everett, is the author of 21 novels, four short story collections, six collections of poetry, and a children's book. He is also, or has been, a horse and mule trainer, a jazz guitarist, a fly fisherman, and a rehabilitator of mandolins. But if you ask him too much or too often what his books mean, He often just says, I don't know, I'm just an old cowboy. But Percival Everett is not a stereotypical cowboy in that he started his career studying mathematical logic and philosophy at the University of Miami and the University of Oregon, ultimately switching to fiction writing, transferring into Brown University's MFA program, where he wrote his first novel, Souter, published in 1983. Over the course of the next 40 years, Everett's novels, novels that explore questions of language, identity, form, and genre, novels that have both used and subverted the tropes of everything from Westerns to Greek myths to detective fiction, novels that do this at least in part to look at all that America tries its best to ignore, prompts The New York Times to say, Everett has cultivated a reputation for his vast, genre-defying, and sometimes gleefully unhinged body of work. And Publishers Weekly, to add, Percival's talent is multifaceted, sparked by a satiric brilliance that could place him alongside Wright and Ellison. Because his work ranges so widely and wildly, everyone has their favorite Percival Everett novel, and no one agrees. His novels include the novel within a novel, Erasure, the novel Glyph, described as having the feverish plot of a thriller and the philosophical depth of a text by Roland Barthes, which stars a precocious baby who reads everything from Balzac to semiotics to trashy thrillers. He's also the author of Percival Everett by Virgil Russell, I Am Not Sidney Poitier, a history of the African-American people proposed by Strom Thurmond, as told to Percival Everett and James Kincaid, and most recently the finalist for the 2021 Pulitzer Prize in Fiction, Telephone, which was released with three different endings, with no obvious way to know which version you'd received. Everett has won too many prizes to name, but they include the Dos Pasos Prize, the Penn Center USA Award for Fiction, a Creative Capital Award, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. Unsurprisingly, scholars have taken interest in his work as well. A partnership between U.S. and French scholars to create a place to cultivate critical and cultural engagement with Everett's work led to the formation of the Percival Everett International Society to do just that. Percival Everett is also an accomplished abstract painter. A portfolio of his paintings has been published in Callaloo, and Chris Abani's poetry collection, There Are No Names for Red, includes paintings by Everett as well. Everett is currently Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Southern California. and He's here today, along with The Trees, his latest book from Grey Wolf. Publishers Weekly says of The Trees, Everett's sharp latest spins a puckish revenge fantasy into dark social satire underpinned by a who-done-it. Book Forum says The Trees is a wild book, a gory pulp revenge fantasy and a detective narrative that alternates between deadpan and slapstick modes of satire. The Trees is just as blood-soaked and just as hilarious as Inglorious Bastards or Django Unchained, but it comes with more authentic historical weight for being set in a dreamlike counter-present rather than a cartoonishly counterfactual past. And Porterhouse Review says, The trees weaves tropes of pulp cop noir with trademark acuity and genre-bending inventiveness to deliver a swift, startlingly expansive take on the legacy of lynching in the American South. Everett is talking with the past in the trees, but he's also talking to the present about the future. To read the book is to be in rare conversation. With all three, welcome to Between the Covers, Percival Everett. Thank
1: you. you for having me.
0: So, over the years, you've you've cited a very eclectic list of influences and inspirations, from Mark Twain, Groucho Marx, Chester Himes, and Jackson Pollock, to Antonioni, Lauren Stern, Lewis Carroll, and Ralph Ellison. So, I was thinking before we talk about the trees. I did want to start in a more ab- abstract and general place with you about your work more broadly and, and then see if we can connect it to this specific book. One writer you speak about as an influence that I'm, I'm particularly curious about is Gertrude Stein, because whereas the trees could be imagined as a, a strange alchemy between Chester Himes, Groucho Marx, Mark Twain and Ralph Allison, no one is going to pick up the trees and think of Gertrude Stein. Um, and yet in your talk about her you say the question isn't how you were influenced by her but how weren't you influenced by her and interestingly that she has influenced you regarding plot so so talk to us about gertrude stein's influence in relationship to your novels
1: well first of all i, I admire uh, stein's her intelligence you know, I I often say of drivers they're aggressively ignorant. Well, what I love is is that Stein is aggressively intelligent, and and, and it's it's clear in all of her play, mm. and, and that's the most important part of her work for me is, is this freedom with language, um, at once having control but understanding that, that language can get loose, and ought to get loose.
0: You, you've you've stressed in 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 talking about her that her writing is not as some people think, automatic writing, that it's actually very constructed. And, and you've also mentioned that play and structure can have as much meaning for you as story and content. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? I, I'll try. <laughs>
1: um, uh, you know, st- structure and style, I'll put those two together, are, are tools and, and d- different stories require different tools to make and to, to make it if- efficiently and, and, and um, have them do their best work. Um, for example, the, the trees, it would have made no sense um, for me to have told that in the same, in the same way that I that I told um, the story of Percival Everett by Virgil Russell uh, the, the dense language, the the play that happens ex, uh, outside the story. Um, and it would have hurt, it would have hurt the trees mm. to do that. Um, so at any point I have to be willing to allow a story, its own style.
0: And in, and in allowing its own style, that becomes part of the meaning.
1: Yes. And, 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 it's, and you mentioned the horses and it's, it's like a horse. You, you don't ask a horse to do something it cannot do.
0: Yeah, and probably even more so a mule.
1: Yes, because if you if you let the mule do what it wants to do, it will never do what you want it to do.
0: <laughs> Well, in many places you've recounted how when you were studying logic and philosophy, and more specifically Wittgenstein, you were studying something called ordinary language philosophy, where you had to write out scenes where people, without using the jargon of philosophy, would nevertheless enact and work out philosophical concepts and that you came to realize that writing fiction was a better vehicle for you to engage with philosophy than philosophy. In that light, you often describe your orientation to a book you're writing in these terms. For instance, you have said you have many longstanding philosophical concerns and that one of them is a equals a is not the same as a is a, and that this is usually where your novels start. So, can you talk to us about this logical distinction as a starting point for a novel?
1: Well, if I could, I probably wouldn't write novels. <laughs>
0: um,
1: it's it's the whole question of identity is 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 in this culture is is you know, especially for someone who who um, who is considered other from the from the start. Um, is is a is a prickly one, um, but basically uh, uh, it's a question of simple A's. A equals A. There's one A on the left side of the equal sign and one on the right. They are not the same A's, regardless of their equality. Um, and it's important to note that in as we expand that, that metaphor that equality doesn't mean the same thing. Hmm. Uh, one of the ways that immediately becomes uh, uh, useful in, in creating a story in America is that is when people use the term colorblind. Um, well yes, <laughs> what does it mean to be colorblind? Right. Uh, I am not going to be you. Um, uh, but we can be equal. So And that, that's a fairly pedestrian way of, of, of taking that, um, that notion and, and taking it to a, a, a human uh, foundation or a human place.
0: Yeah. Well, you've talked about something similar to A equals A versus A is A in your book, Percival Everett by Virgil Russell, which is divided into three sections, one named after the evening star, one after the morning star, and one after the planet Venus, all of which are the same thing—the same celestial body—but are also very different things. And and you you've said that this is what drives your work: this notion of logic and identity. And I don't know if this is a very easy question or a hard one, but thinking of Gertrude Stein and how play and structure can create meaning as much as story, and thinking of this distinction distinction and logic between three ways of seeing the same thing, that in each iteration is also a different thing. I I was hoping you could take us into the trees and how these influences are manifest there, because on the one hand, while I, I totally get that you are more compelled by language and logic and play than plot, I think you also frequently and regularly undersell your abilities as a storyteller. Um, not only is erasure a a formal marvel, but both the novel within the novel, written in an entirely different syntax than the novel as a whole, and the novel as a whole, succeed on the level of storytelling. And here with The Trees, we have a a possibly supernatural mystery and political thriller that is both comic and vengeful and abounds in plot. So where do you see Stein and... A equals A come to play or, or serve as a, um, a generative place when it comes to the, the latest novel by you?
1: Well, in order to, to, to apply it in some way, um, I have to forget that I'm working unconsciously most of the time when these things, um, when I go to work, I stop thinking about, about the philosophical things that drive me. I, I don't want them to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, though as you talked about Frege's puzzle of sense and reference the Morning Star, Evening Star and, and Venus, I realized that even then I had been working on my novel Telephone, or, or the three versions, which are the same novel. Um, but with the trees, I, I would I would say that I'm the last person to ask how these things uh, tie together. Um, the, again, a fairly obvious place is in the listing of names. The, the list could be in any order. The names carry no, no significantly different weight. Um, and, and, it, and it would change nothing to invert the list completely and turn it inside out. Those names are all equal, but they are not all the same. Mm. Each one has an individual and significant and important life of its own.
0: Well, let's take a little um, sidestep from the book for a second before we go into the actual story. Because you mentioned that you're the last person to ask. And and I wanted to, I know this is an important notion for you that the the reader constructs the meaning of the books and that the, the author um, may be the last person to ask about the meaning of the book. But tell us a little bit about being a teacher in this regard. Because I know you said that you don't believe in craft. Um, and also I think you've taught a class, maybe it was at Bread Loaf, called anti-craft. And so how, how do you position yourself as somebody? Because um, I can imagine somebody not um, believing in craft as the writer, but then how do you position yourself in a writing class? And what would an anti-craft class look like?
1: Well, first of all, we can cover all the issue, the the uh, issues of craft pretty quickly. Setting, where does it happen? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Character, who does it happen to? If right. <laughs> um, you got to say something to each other, so that covers dialogue. Um, my 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 job when I go into the classroom is to disabuse my students. Of, of the belief that there is a right way to do it. Um, unlike uh, many forms of poetry where there are all sorts of rules, there are none in fiction. Hmm. Um, we can sit down and try to follow those draconian uh, laws of, of making a villanelle. Um, and if we get one wrong, someone will say that's not a villanelle. If I give you 12 pages of fiction I don't care what we find wrong. I have no way to tell you that this is not a story. Right. Um, I can tell you, well, it's not a very good story, but I can't tell you that it's not a story. Um, so in that way, uh, fiction, contrary to to the way we, our contrary intuition is, is, um, is far looser in a way than poetry. And also I believe that, that, that the attention to particular words individual words should be as stringent and in, in fiction as it is in poetry that 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 allows the fiction to um achieve as much meaning as it can not the meaning i insist on because that would be insane <laughs> <laughs> but, but some meaning
0: yeah and so is with the notion of an anti Craft workshop be one that sort of removes the guardrails of what at somebody's preconceived notion of what fiction is.
1: Yes, and it's short.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> All right. So uh, the trees. Speaking of setting, takes place in the in the town in Mississippi where Emmett Till was murdered in 1955, but it takes place in contemporary times, and instead, white people are being murdered. And discovered alongside the white bodies, there's always a black body wrapped in barbed wire, just like Emmett Till was, but strangely not bleeding, and in his outstretched hand are are the testicles of the white person just killed.
1: It sounds bad when you say it. (laughs) (laughs) It does sound
0: bad. (laughs) Not bad as in poorly written, but (laughs) terrible scenario. Um, Every time this black body is brought to the morgue, it mysteriously disappears, and at the next murder of the next white person, it is found there again with yet another pair of white testicles in its hand. A lot of people have compared this element of the book to some of Tarantino's films, particularly my favorite, *Inglorious Bastards, which similarly inverts the world so that the Jews are bringing down vengeance on the Nazis. In other places, in other books and in other interviews, you've very much tried to dispel reductive stereotypes about the South, particularly because they are often used by Northerners to not look at themselves. For instance, you say you grew up in the South and yet you don't have a quote-unquote Southern accent or that, contrary to stereotype, your great-grandfather was a Texan Jew who married a former slave or that when it comes to segregation, the most segregated cities are in the North. And I looked this up, and currently four of the top five most segregated cities are Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, and Newark. And that even though you grew up in the South, the only time you've been called the N-word is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But in this book, it seems like instead of complicating or troubling the stereotype of the white Southerner you amplify it. And I love when Scott Simon on NPR asked you if you were stereotyping your southern bigots when you described them as smelling of shit, aqua velva, and pimento cheese. But thinking now again of A equals A not being the same as A is A, but not in terms of math and logic, but in terms of identity, talk to us about this decision here in the trees to amplify and caricature.
1: Well, one reason I I did it is is because of this American impulse to scapegoat other parts of the country for bad behavior. And I just wanted to see whether uh, the reception of the book would have people uh, underscore the fact that these characters are Southern rather than American. Um, And as the novel progresses, we understand that the crimes have happened all over the United States. In fact, <laughs> I just read. I was. I, I just read recently that the only recorded um, lynching in Canada, the only one, it was 1884. Uh, a native man named uh, Sam Louis or Louis Sam. I'm sorry, Louis Sam, uh, and he was lynched by an American mob that crossed the border to get him. Wow. So this is this is this is an American thing. There were obviously lynchings. And, in, in Europe and in, and, in, and in the uh, British Isles. Um, but it's really it's, it's, it's really an American thing um, and not a Southern American thing. And I wasn't looking to be fair in this novel at all to anyone.
0: Yeah. When you say you, you were curious whether um, people would underscore the Southernness, do you feel like that has happened that people are, are pointing out the southernness?
1: Yeah. So I, I, what I I was actually, I don't read reviews generally, but I, but someone called attention to a a New York times review, which said new Southern fiction. And, and I, I, I found that remarkable. Mm. Um, um, uh, this, this is an American story and to say that it's Southern is to, uh, is to make it less American and to, and to, um, station somebody below someone else.
0: Yeah. And it's a way to avoid self-examination too. Of it course seems. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um we have a lot of fun with names in the book. And and it feels like it is an extension of the way the book is very black and white. And and, and I mean that pun with the mm. pun intended, the 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 characters from the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation and the FBI who come to Money, Mississippi, to investigate the the crimes. All of them are black and have, or most of them are black, and have pretty normal names like Jim Davis and Ed Morgan. And the white characters have names like Delroy Digby, Hickory Spit, Red Jetty, Junior Junior and Braden Brady, and my favorite one, the governor of South Carolina, Pinch Wayface, Um. But when I think of naming and and classification and identity, things that you're engaging with in many of your books, how even when you wrote books yourself about Greek mythology, you would still find them in, in African American Studies section of the bookstore simply because you were a black writer. Or reviewers who, even when your book wasn't about race, would need to end the review with a, by the way, the author is black, or the ways you explore the literary marketplace one that remains overwhelmingly controlled by white publishers and editors who consider only certain types of books by black people as marketable and you and you mock this you give them and you also mock this sort of book in the novel the er, uh, erasure with, with the novel within the novel and you've talked about how this was, at least with er- with erasure, this was at least partially inspired by how you think Richard Wright, uh, Crassley was giving the white marketplace what it most wanted to read about black people. I guess my question is whether you think nuance as a writing strategy on the one hand, for instance, giving us black protagonists that don't fit the stereotype, whether they are abstract painters or philosophers or scientists. And on the other hand, using an exaggerated lack of nuance where in the trees, the only characters who are competent, self-reflective and kind are the black characters. If perhaps both strategies really point at the same problem, if writing a book that is very black and white in this way, is just another approach to investigating the same trap of identity. Um, I guess I was curious if you could just talk about naming in that light.
1: Oh, well, the naming is just, uh, I'm having fun. I, I, uh, that's, that's, I, mean, I, I hope the names do some work, but it, it's, it's, you know, I've got to have some fun too, right? <laughs> and, um, and, and I have to, my favorite um, name is Red Jetty. Red Jetty. Yes. Um, Jetty being a neck. And, and and, that's, and that set everything off and then mm-hmm. the names just started rolling to me um, I'm glad you like pinch way face uh,
0: yes I think pinch way face is a high point in the nomenclature but do you have a sense of like this um, the, the polarization it seems like very conscious polarization of the way you characterize uh, along the lines of race in the book Seems it seems very intentional.
1: Yeah, well, it it is, and and it's. Uh, I'll give you a a, a, a very brief uh, example of w- what can happen to one and uh, to a black person in this culture, uh, and it's. I'll give you well two examples. The first one is a, is is from uh, Chester Hines' novel If He Hollers, Let Him Go, where our main character is crossing the street having a, a pleasant day. Um, and a white man in a car is stopped, stopped at a light stares at him with, with this deep seated hatred that can only be because he's black. Um, and he's there and reminds him of, 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 the world that he lives in. And, and so that one glare ruins his day mm. and he's been otherwise happy. Uh, Likewise, I was once walking through an antique mall uh, off the side of a taking a road trip, and went into one and, and came around a corner. And I was had it was a beautiful day, and, and I was having a nice time. And, and as I came around the corner, there was a huge pyramid of Aunt Jemima cookie jars uh, set next to. Um, uh, uh, these, these offensive uh, 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 sculptures of black boys eating watermelon. And I was slapped in the face by this American, and this is in Niles, Michigan, <laughs> and, um, by the fact that this is where I live. Um, white people don't experience that in this culture. And this is my version
0: of that. Could, could we hear a little bit of the prose? I, um, well, I was thinking we could read the um, one long paragraph that opens chapter 95. Okay,
1: cool. FBI's supervisory special agent of the Southeast Regional Office, Ajax Kinney, disembarked from a commercial flight at the Hessler Noble Field just north of Hattiesburg. He was met by several other agents arriving from offices in Chicago, Dallas, and D.C., the agent from Dallas was a man named Hickory Spitt, a legend in the Bureau only because he was the older oldest active agent in the uh, agent in the Justice Department in Justice Department history. Born in 1934, he was just shy of eighty-five. He was the only man currently in the FBI who had actually worked under J. Edgar Hoover. A Texan by birth, he was famous for leading the FBI efforts to discredit Martin Luther King, having once penned a letter to King suggesting that he commit suicide. He was there with the others, wearing his Stetson, cowboy boots, and pearl-handled sidearm because he was the only member of the force who had actually witnessed the lynching. He was there also because it had been so ordered by the President of the United States who considered him an American hero. Spit thought Hoover and Eisenhower were the same person, didn't like Kennedy, hated Johnson's politics, loved Nixon, once claimed to have a bullet to have a bullet with Jimmy Carter's name on it, was suspicious of Reagan, didn't care for George H.W. Bush, unofficially investigated Clinton, considered George W. Bush an intellectual elite, near died of a stroke when Barack Obama was elected and was in love with the current clown. He still had a badge and a gun, but could hardly wipe his own ass. He smelled of shit, aqua velva and pimento cheese. He had one living relative, a son he had sexually abused and who now hated him from another country. Clint Eastwood had plans to make a biopic of his life and career.
0: I've been listening to Percival Everett read a short excerpt from The Trees. I I, I just really love that section. Um, and it makes me think of, like when I think of um, two people you frequently mention, Mark Twain and Groucho Marx, and I can certainly see the the connection with Twain and how he he confronts the least funny things with humor and, and Groucho Marx with his delight in wordplay. But when I think of the question, how are you making me laugh in a book about lynchings? I also think of Mel Brooks, who doesn't shy away from doing comedy about the Spanish Inquisition or the Holocaust yep. or any number of things. Um, so, so I read that you actually teach blazing saddles in your class and that your students look to you for permission to laugh. Um, Particularly, I'm imagining, because of the very liberal use of the N-word in the movie. And I wondered if you could talk about why this is a teachable movie for you, and if there are any lessons about humor that overlap with how you engage with humor in the trees.
1: Well, I suppose it's the same sort of burlesque humor. The the, um, word speaking technically about humor, that's that's the style. Um, Blazing Saddles is so smart about race. Uh, it's it's that in the early seventies we were smarter about race than we are now. Is is surprising? Um, most of that script was written by by Richard Pryor, which is um, and Richard Pryor and Mel Brooks, Brooks together it can only be funny. Um, and and with, with certainly with Pryor it can only be sad and serious um humor is 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 fascinating to me because no matter what we do we can laugh Um, it's it's a weird human thing that that even comes out in an in an untrue way in most films when we see some several people and someone is killed (laughs) among the group and 20 seconds later, they survive something horrific and they're laughing. It obviously will never happen that way, but it's in, it's in our, 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 our collective consciousness that it should. You know, anytime you talk about humor, it stops being funny. Um, and, and maybe that should be my next mission is to, is to write a book about humor that's funny. Um, <laughs> I, I doubt I can do it. Um, but the, the, uh, the great part about humor is once you have someone laughing, you can do other things to them. Uh, and even something as bizarre in our culture as having someone think.
0: Having someone what? Think. Think. Yes. Well, when you say that we understood race better in the seventies than now, um, I guess I wanted to ask about your students' uneasiness and whether you saw it as a good thing, a sign of progress around our sensitivity to others, or do you think that the movie's careening past all notions of propriety is is in and of itself something of value and, and something that is has been lost because of that sort of um, over-cautiousness, let's say.
1: Well, the interesting thing about that film is it, it never gives anyone permission to behave as a racist. It it, uh, it, 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 it reveals our racism and, and in a way that we can all see and, and recognize and then become comfortable with. Um, not that it's right, but that it's wrong. Um, no one sees the villains in, in, in um, Blazing Saddles and says, oh, I wanna be like, like him. Right. <laughs> that's, that's not what happens. Um, it's a it's a very strange thing our our culture decides to be afraid of a word instead of a concept you know uh my students are afraid of the word nigger i'm not afraid of the word nigger i'm afraid of the person who uses it in a certain way um the and and i don't understand why mere substitution changes that if 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 I get pulled over, uh, um, and I'll change everything, I'll get pulled over at night by a state trooper in New Hampshire, which we used to call the Mississippi of the North, um, uh, and he says, what are you doing here, N-word? I would be, if not more, <laughs> at least just as frightened as if he had said, nigger. <laughs> and um, if I if 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 I called uh, someone an N-word, well, Why should they be less offended? It's that I've called someone that. So why should be afraid of saying a word? And why should professors be afraid of using a word if they're illustrating historically what that word does? Um, People who want to ban uh, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn because of the presence of that word are either, well, we have a few choices here <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but one of them is, is is they're really afraid to look at themselves um and they're afraid to look at each other
0: mm.
1: and and so the, the the villain becomes language
0: well I don't know if this relates but All of these questions about race and types and symbols makes me think of your short story, The Appropriation of Cultures, where uh, the black characters in in the story appropriate the Confederate flag as a black power symbol, and they fly it everywhere. And it also makes me think about the time you were asked to address the South Carolina state government at the state capitol on the subject of art, where you said you began to talk and to tell them that you were there to speak about art, but that art and politics were inextricably bound together, and that the flag as a symbol of exclusion was unacceptable. And then you walked out. But you've since said that you actually don't want people to stop flying the flag, that the flag tells us very loud and very clearly who the people flying it are. And somehow this feels connected to this Blazing Saddles question of whether it, it should be said invisible and if not saying it, but still thinking it is better or not. But I'm also curious if you feel that same way now, now that the ugliest of the American id is flying the flag, defending the statues um, shamelessly, being completely transparent about who they are in the, in the public square.
1: Well, the example I, I, always uses. When I come to a minefield, I really appreciate a big sign on the edge of it that says mines. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Well, the reason I ask if your feelings about the flag have changed once again is because Trump is in the book as a character. And I want to talk about him but similarly to the trees as a whole, I'm gonna, I want to step back first and ask a question more abstractly about nonsense. Um, the more exuberant, unbridled aspects of your and, and Brooks' work, the thread that runs through it, which feels like sort of a Dionysian linguistic zaniness, isn't itself nonsensical in your work but sometimes it's it's working against sense or good sense. And I know you're also interested in actual nonsense, and that nonsense is part of what attracts you to Gertrude Stein and to Lewis Carroll. You even have a character in I Am Not Sidney Poitier named Percival Everett who teaches a course called The Philosophy of Nonsense. And I've only had one guest in in... The 11 years I've been doing this, who's who's who have had a conversation about nonsense with, and that was with the writer Jesse Ball. And in an essay of his, he said, There's a misunderstanding about what nonsensical things are. The idea that they're just funny and that's the beginning and the end of it. Nonsense is not not sense, it operates at the edge of sense. It teems with sense. At the same time, it resists any kind of universal understanding. And I wondered if you agree with Jesse Ball here, and also whether you feel like nonsense bears any relationship to a book like the the Trees.
1: Well, I do agree with with, with um, his his uh, statement about nonsense. I nonsense reveals more about us than it does about itself Um, nonsense has to adhere more rigidly to the rules of syntax than sense does in order to operate um, we're tricked into believing that there is sense there it's a lot like fly fishing when you really look at some of the flies they don't look anything like the aquatic insects that they Mm. in fact some of them are, are kind of funny when, when, when you look at them. But when, but when seen from under the water um, in the context uh, with the rules in place, uh, with the stream running, with, with the, the light reflecting off the, uh, the water, it looks like it should be tasty. And, and so the same with, with, with nonsense, it sounds like it should make sense. And so we search for the sense. What I love is there's no sense to be found, but we continue looking for it. I think that's a great exercise for any human being. Um, and there's a distinction to be made between nonsense and gibberish. Mm. If I just pound on the keyboard of my, my typewriter, how old am I? Typewriter. <laughs> I found of the keyboard of, of my my what whatever you call these machines now. Um, uh, and that's gibberish. Those are just letters. They they don't mean anything. Um, nonsense does mean something. Just that so no one can say what it means. I love that idea.
0: Mm. Well, as an aside around that, I, I was curious if you were ever attracted to the writers in the ulipo movement not not only because they're playful and sometimes nonsensical but also when they were founded it was half writers and half logicians and mathematicians do you do you are you attracted to that at all to ulipian techniques or constraints as a way to generate
1: sometimes uh, there, there there's there's a difference than um just having fun and the employment of of nonsense in a way to, to, to have an effect. Um, and, and I'm more interested in the latter.
0: Well, let's take this question of nonsense and bring it around to Trump. Um, many of your bios and in, in your books have been moderately informative in the past. Your poetry collections even say that you've had, you have been a fly fisherman for 30 years But recently with this book, your bio in some places is two lines. Percival Everett is author to more than 30 books. He voted for Joe Biden. And your interviewer in the White Review asked you, I I thought, a really great question that connects us to Trump. When, When nonsense has been weaponized, what is the artistic response? In other words, if the culture celebrates ignorance, Creates and lives within fake realities with fake news sources. If the language has devolved into a parody of itself, and reality is itself exaggerated, absurd, and surreal, what happens to satire?
1: We'll I have to make a distinction here between the, the the difference between nonsense and the absence of sense. Um, when we we're dealing with the language and and uh, around Trump and. Whatever Trumpism is, uh, I've never heard any tenets of Trumpism. One is hard. (laughs) No one ever asks someone, what is Trumpism? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, There's no answer to that except uh, the very sad one, Uh, duh, Trump, Um, is that there's no attempt to make meaning. There is an attempt to, um, to to scam, to delude, to ha- to to hide the ab- absence of meaning with um, an absence of, of 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 thoughtfulness. Well, it's not an absence of thoughtfulness. It's to hide with that ad- with with an absence of sincerity. And and that's and that's the the scariest part of this is that uh, I saw on on. Uh, in a photograph the other day someone had a picture of uh, and maybe this is perfect of Jesus with Donald Trump um, if religion is that important to you that you s is on the side of a van if, if 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 religion is that important to you that you have Jesus on your van <laughs> will you um, uh, associate your your God with someone who behaves in this way in the world. That makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not nonsense. That's an absence of sense. Mm.
0: So it's a a bad juxtaposition to put a Trump speech and the Jabberwocky together.
1: Uh, no, because it re- it required uh. <laughs> Uh, work to make jabberwocky <laughs> it required imagination to make jabberwocky yes um, it was not attempt it wasn't an attempt to say nothing it was an attempt to say something that would make people look for something
0: yeah now that seems a super vital distinction well i, I want to move us to a a significant and countervailing aspect of the book one that many have called elegiac in tone and that is the story and activities of the 105-year-old root doctor mama z but before we do as as a transition i just want to read something from the porterhouse review by sam downs that connects these two elements the the comic and burlesque and the elegiac and and serious he said at the heart of the trees is an elegant sleight of hand appearing at first dedicated to the tropes implied by its thriller billing and familiar caricature of the white rural south the novel swiftly departs from the constraints of genre to suggest that everett's portrayal of the rural white south is less exaggerated than it initially seems in short order, the ostensibly comically drawn Reverend Dr. Fondle and Deputy Delroy Digby reveal themselves t- to be both ignoramuses and genu- genuine everyday perpetrators of racial violence. The hapless remains of the local branch of the Klan is nonetheless reinvigorated when white bodies start piling up. It sinks in quickly that the residents of Money don't need any authorial assistance in presenting themselves as the kind of caricatures populating conventional narratives. In what came for this reader as a rush of recognition, not unlike spotting an animal hidden in plain sight, the seemingly exaggerated gestures of genre reveal themselves to be less a part of the lens mechanics of the trees as features of the environment being photographed. White money, in other words, is a cliché of its own making, and I, I guess I had a similar experience to Sam. I even thought at the beginning that Money, Mississippi, was a made-up name as as part of your caricature at first. But not only is it a real town where Emmett Till was murdered, you suggest the town is wrapped up in its own caricature when you say the town is named in in the persistent tradition of irony, with the attendant tradition of nescience. The name becoming. Slightly sad, a marker of self-conscious ignorance that might as well be embraced because, let's face it, it isn't going anywhere. So I was hoping maybe you could just introduce us a little bit to the character of, of Mama Z, who who's, who embodies this other part of the book, a book that feels quite far from satire. Uh, can can you speak to us about the this hundred and five year old uh, root doctor? Um, and your inspirations for her.
1: Um, she is a 105 year old black woman whose father, whose own father was, 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 was lynched. Um, she's not based on any particular person, but an amalgam of, of, of many, uh, people who who lived through the years where that was a, a significant fear when one went out outside. Um. But what she has done in in the novel, she has compiled uh, dossiers on dossier on 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 every lynching in a, in the United States. So she has a room filled with file cabinets filled with dossiers, um, and each one has a name, and that's what was important to me.
0: So in in compiling the names of everyone who have been lynched since the day she was born. She has the file cabinet after file cabinet and invites a professor to come down and look through it. And he starts writing out the names by hand, one by one. And you've said that you did the same. Yes. And the longest chapter in the trees is just this list of of names. Not comprehensive, but even the list is 10 pages long that you include in, in the trees. It reminded me a little bit of the ending of, of Claudia Rankin citizen. And and when I interviewed her in, in 2014 with the first edition, there was just a handful of names at the end of people who, um, unarmed, um, black people who had been killed by the police. But with each edition, she added the names that had, um, of other people who'd been killed since the first, since the previous edition, so much so that it felt like it was overtaking the proportions of the other chapters in the book, and and similarly here it feels like it's an extremely powerful, ch- um, chapter just with these names abandoning the narrative, um, and we've been talking about naming and stereotype and identity, but it feels like this is a different type of naming. And I was wondering if you could both speak to what this sort of naming means to you and also what the process of, of going through that process that the professor does of writing down the names for you was like.
1: Well, with, with each name, it's become someone. That, that name becomes that person. And I'm, and this comes from an experience I had at the Vietnam Memorial in D.C., uh, which is a, a, a very affecting um, monument. Um, as I walked down into it, um, there are lots of people. They're looking at all the names. And I heard a woman say to someone, and not, not with, with any particular uh grief or anything though I sure she said I found him as mm. she was looking for their their loved one. Um not I found his name <laughs> not there it is but I found him and that 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 really that moved me as much as the mind made itself um and that stayed with me and that and that's and that's what's behind names is, is we are our names.
0: Uh, Let's, let's spend a minute with, um, archiving in relation to the book. You've made it clear that you aren't a big fan of book reviews and, and that you don't read them often and that you aren't a big fan of interviews such as the one we're doing, but that you're interested in the scholarship about your work. And I read an interesting piece of scholarship called There is No Magic Here, saidia Hartman, Percival Everett's Zulus and Slavery's Archives that suggested that what saidia Hartman's nonfiction does around the archive can also be found um, predating her in your novel Zulus. And they quote from Hartman's The Positions of the Unthought, where she says, What I was trying to do as a cultural historian was to narrate a certain impossibility, to illuminate those practices that speak to the limits of the most available narratives to explain the position of the enslaved. On the one hand, the slave is the foundation of the national order, and on the other the slave occupies the position of the unthought. So what does it mean to try to bring that position into view without making it a locus of positive value or without trying to fill in the void? Somehow that felt connected to me to the naming in the book also. But also when I abstract this notion of, of the unthought from its context and political situation I also think of you saying that Stein focuses on not content and not feeling, and thus the intellectual pursuit of art making. But I was but I was curious if this quote from Hartman about the archive, uh, if that sparks any any thoughts in you.
1: Well, well certainly. I mean, um, one one of the things that the, that gets taken away from from slaves right away is is their humanity by being renamed. Um, I've often thought about Ellis Island in, in that way. Um, we perhaps giving people a gift of a home, but to take their names is to, is to pay a price as one enters this American exper- experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, all I can say is that is is it makes sense to me. Um, and and, and, and I, I think that's probably uh, true, um, basically. Um, what would be interesting would be to 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 explore different cultures um, uh, thinking about names, which I haven't done, but as we sit here speaking, um, that's what what occurs to me. Um, there are there are even uh, you know, the actual c- citizens of this this continent often have naming ceremonies um, which we we don't have. Um, I suppose, even in Christianity there are the, the christenings are perhaps naming ceremonies. Not everyone practices that. And 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 I'd be interested in the in the again, I know nothing about it, the the history of, of 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 this
0: what it means. Well, if it feels like with Mama Z's archive, the the one that she's assembled since she was um of all the lynchings and unarmed killings since she was born 105 years previously is where the, um, the black and white binary breaks down in the book. Then the the names of the lynched are predominantly um, black people who've been lynched, but they also include Matthew Shepard and Leo Frank and a large number of, of Chinese names. And in particular Chinese and chinese American workers who were lynched in america these these um victims they figure prominently in the book ultimately and it drove me to do research to learn about the the Chinese massacre of eighteen seventy one when a mob of of white and hispanic people entered Los Angeles's Chinatown and murdered. 19 Chinese immigrants, 15 who were lynched, which some have described as the largest mass lynching. Um, but like with Emmett Till, where even though the acquitted murderers of Till confessed that they did it in a magazine interview within a year of the murder, they weren't retried due to rules of double jeopardy, the eight people who were convicted in the Chinese massacre were, were freed on technicalities. And I guess I my research as a reader made me wonder about your research as a writer. You, you said that one of the things that you most like about a new novel is that you get to study new things, new things that have included geomorphology and hydrology and watershed and w- watching and rewatching all the films of Sydney Poitier. Um, what were the new things here that you were studying or or how did the research look like for you, specific to the trees?
1: Well, um, mainly it was, it was reading about lynchings um, and books about lynching. There are quite a few of them. Um, and what gets called the lynching, the language. I haven't read anything about that, but that's what I came to. Uh, 1921, there was a, the race riot, is what it's called, so this was a massacre in, in um, Greenwood, um, Oklahoma, um, was a mass lynching. Um, it, uh, a lynching is simply a, 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 a mob um, and a mob can be one person <laughs> uh, killing someone uh, uh, outside the law.
0: Were were the lynchings of the of the Chinese American workers? Was that something you discovered along the way, or something that you had always been aware of?
1: I I read about it um some time ago, and and uh, and also the, uh, the the Rock Springs Wyoming um, um lynching of of I can't remember how many Chinese uh, workers, um, and there were there were some lynchings of Italian men, and I think a couple of Italian names show up on the list. I'm I, I, I've forgotten now, um, and I did I did uh, watch uh, because I'm not a, a, a I don't read pulp fiction very much. I, I read and watched a bunch of police procedurals because I didn't really have the uh, the um, the language of it. So I did that. That might've been the hardest part of all of this is I, d- turns out I don't much like police procedurals, mm-hmm. but, but I, did. I did watch a bunch.
0: Did any stand out for you?
1: Well, it's not really a police procedural, but one, one, one old television show that has stayed with me and, and did not inform the novel, but it's become my, my uh, relaxation is the old Perry Mason. Um, and it was, it's the form of it. It's always the same form. And yet the stories are all different. And I can tell you when what is going to happen. But I will watch all of them. <laughs>
0: yeah. So it's got a good hook. Yes, yeah. Well, you've said you you would like to be able to write an abstract book without knowing exactly what that would be like. But as, as you mentioned before we started today, you've painted some abstract paintings that are in, in relationship to the trees. And I think your opening in L.A. is happening in a gallery tonight. Um, so maybe as a substitute for writing an abstract novel for now, tell, tell us how these paintings relate to the trees for you. Um, what about the paintings connects to the book?
1: The, the title of the entire show is, is Once Seen. And, and actually the catalog is a 1921 issue of, of the Crisis Magazine, the NAACP Magazine. 1921, was, uh, well, 1919 was called Red Summer because there were so many lynchings. Um, and and uh, this issue of, of the crisis devoted to lynching, Seemed to be a, a perfect um, vehicle for my paintings. So my paintings replace many of the photographs that were in uh, in the in the in the um, magazine. Again, the title of the show is "Once Seen," and it's and it's because and it's a very sad thing for me. Once you once you see what it is a painting of, you can't unsee it, mm. and that's sort of what I hope happens with with the novel. Though I I don't have great expectations of for my country, um, it's once you see the history of lynching, how can you unsee it? Um, again, but we've been presented with the history of lynching millions of times, uh, slapped in the face with it, and and <laughs> I had a. And uh, albeit uh, uh, a friend from another country, shocked that I that I was concerned about lynching, uh, his thinking being this was something that happened long ago. And and um, and I had to uh, uh, disabuse him of this of this this idea uh, by showing him um, names from last year. Yeah.
0: Well, as, as we come to a close, I, I want to return to something else that Jesse Ball said that I loved. He said something which he attributed to the Russian writer Daniel Harms. And Harms said, a poem if thrown at a pane of glass should break the glass. Ball interprets this line for himself as the effect being the crucial thing. And, and Ball says, that's the approach i try to take not to be vain with the success of the writing as writing but rather its effect in that realm you've you've talked a lot about how you feel like the reader not the writer is the one who constructs the meaning of the book and you go go farther and say the writer as you said earlier in this interview is the worst person to ask what a work means and you go even farther and said in an interview in France with Claude Julien, every time I finish a book, I know less than when I started. I think I know something when I start writing, and as the problems I approach become more complex and interesting, I realize that everything I thought I knew was wrong. After 18 books I know considerably less than most people, I'm well on my way to knowing nothing at all. But you've also said that the ending of the trees, the way it ends, for you is a, is a call to arms for the reader. That perhaps you're throwing this book at, at a pane of glass, hoping the glass will break. Um, that maybe even if you have no control over the reader and his or her meaning-making around the novel and your life and the life of the novel have now parted ways, that it's up to us now to make it what it will be, and that I know you're allergic to this that maybe you have this desired effect in mind. Um, do you can you is that fair to say that, um, the call to arms at the end, um, or what you've called that, um, maybe the throwing of the poem at the glass?
1: Well, I suppose we're always doing that, but um, again, I, I can't control anything that happens once, once the words are let go, once they're in, and I can't stand at bookstores and tell everybody as they leave the dozens <laughs> of people that might buy my book, um, uh, uh, what it means, what it should mean. Um, I, in fact, if it was going to mean exactly what I think it means, I probably wouldn't write because there's no adventure in that. Yeah. Um, the adventure is 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 the fact that sometimes the poem will break the glass, and sometimes it won't. Yeah. That's where uh, that's the real thing I want to understand. You know, the mere fact that I choose to write fiction to make a living is ample evidence that I'm mentally deficient, and that you shouldn't listen to anything <laughs> about the world I say. Um, on the other hand. Um, I have a way of seeing the world that, 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 might, that might change the way someone views it um, or calcify. Who knows? Yeah. That's thrilling.
0: Well, thank you for being here today, Percival.
1: Thank you, it's a nice talk.
0: We've been talking today to Percival Everett about his latest book from Gray Wolf, The Trees. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the fundraising campaign to get Between the Covers on solid footing going into 2022 at patreon.com slash betweenthecovers where you can learn about the bonus audio archive, extra material from everyone from Kaba Akbar to Padre Gotuma to Jory Graham to Richard Powers or get collectible work from everyone from Ursula K. Le Guin to Nikki Finney, to Darren Negrifo, or become an early reader at Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of the year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, this and much more can be found at patreon.com between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Bala in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the unmatchable summer and winter Tin House Writers' Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.